The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus sent out the 72 to go on ahead of him into the towns that he was about to go in. Uh, to prepare his way, much like John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. And he tells them to do two things when he sends them. He says, you need to go heal the sick and to preach. Right? That's what it says in verse 9. Heal the sick and say, right, proclaim, the kingdom of God is come near. Jesus didn't say anything about casting out demons, does he? But he does send them um, with his own authority. Right? When he says, he who hears you hears me. Right? Jesus has so fully united himself with his people that his own work of mission is extended through the labors of his servants, and they go with his authority. So the 72, they set out ahead of Jesus, and at this point you might be wondering, who were these 72? Uh, I think one of the things we imagine wrong when we read the gospel stories is we think of Jesus and 12 guys, and that's it. But if you pay close attention to the Gospels, there's actually a pretty sizable crowd that is always wandering around with Jesus. There's at least 72 people who he then can clearly send out. But often you'll see in the Gospels, it'll say the 12 and the other disciples and the crowd. And we think disciples is a synonym for the 12. Sometimes it is. But we see from the Gospels, there's actually this large band of people that wandered with Jesus in his ministry of preaching and healing. Large enough that, you know, we, th- we think of the, the 12 in the upper room um, at the Last Supper. But we know in the upper room at Pentecost, it says there are 120 people who didn't just meet Jesus that day, right? They'd been walking with Jesus for a while. An interesting sort of postscript from church history. Uh, later, Christian historians sort of deduced that a number of the secondary figures that we see in the New Testament church, the Silvanuses and Tituses and Onesiphoruses in the New Testament, were probably among the 72, that they'd already been sent out on submission, they'd been entrusted with little, shown themselves faithful, and then were entrusted with much. And there's sort of later traditions about who goes on to be bishops where and whatnot, but it's tradition. So the 72 set out, and it doesn't say how long they're gone, days, maybe weeks. They come back to Jesus, and the first thing on their lips is, Lord, the demons are subject to us. Which, again, should catch us as as a surprise because they they don't go out intending to do exorcisms. They go out to preach and to heal. But they encounter these demons. So what's going on? Um, I think it's important to see that when the disciples go out and proclaim the kingdom of God, they're not canvassing for some idea. Like, hey, you guys want to buy in for this sort of idea that we have? They're actually launching spiritual war. That until Jesus came, other than the city of Jerusalem, the holy city which had been consecrated by God's own presence in the temple, every other square mile of the earth was under the dominion of Satan. Did you know that? Um, Although the Lord made the earth because of man's sin and the corruption that it brought with it, the Bible says Jesus actually calls Satan the ruler of this world. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 would say, Satan is the God of this age. That he actually sort of has had territory on the earth. And when the disciples go out and are proclaiming the kingdom of God, 
That's fighting words. That's saying that this is no longer, the prince of the air is no longer going to have power here. The real king is here. Jesus is here, and he's claiming his kingdom. This is a land war, a spiritual land, land war. The Gospels tell us that the enemy has two things that he does. He lies and he destroys. And what do the disciples go out and do? They preach the truth and they heal. That's called counter-warfare. The 72 are sent out on this mission um, for the kingdom of God. And evidently, um, the demons kicked back a bit. We don't know how. We don't know what that looked like. The gospel doesn't say. Probably much like the way they do in Jesus' own healing ministry. And with a word, with a single word, the demons are subdued. They're pinned to the ground and rendered powerless. With the simple claiming of the name of Jesus. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. That's what the apostles are ecstatic over. I think there's uh, three things that we should really take in from this gospel this morning. Um, The first is that we're still in the midst of spiritual warfare. Now, thankfully, we're 2,000 years into the mission of the church. 2,000 years worth of missionaries proclaiming the kingdom of God, of sanctifying the earth with their prayers, with their holy deeds, and sometimes with exorcisms. And many, many of the demons that once ran rampant on the earth have been chained and rendered powerless, and they're waiting judgment day. That's what we see in Revelation. They've been chained up, and we're waiting to see when they'll be judged on the last day. So thankfully, the sort of startling, drastic encounters of the enemy are less frequent now than they once were in ages past. But that doesn't mean that the enemy is still not around sometimes. Um, And I want to say this too, that especially when a population reverts back to old idols and old sins that have been turned away from, that actually invites the demons to have dominion in that place again. So I I want to be clear that the... The 72, they didn't set out to do sort of spiritual warfare. They weren't going home about that. They just wanted to preach the truth and to do what God told them to do according to their station. And along the way, they encountered the enemy. And I think the same is true of us, that along the way, if you're seeking to follow Christ with your words, with your deeds, with your choices, um, you can expect from time to time spiritual opposition. But this brings me quickly to my second point, um, which is that in this, there's nothing to be afraid of for the Christian, right? There's nothing to be afraid of. All the powers of the enemy have no sway or authority over the life of a Christian. And that's a really important caveat for a Christian, right? Hollywood makes scary movies because worldly people should rightly be afraid of the enemy. But if you're in Christ Jesus, and by that I mean if you have been baptized into his name, if in, that's in the past, right? And if in the present you claim him as your Lord, that's an act of faith in the present. If you're in Christ, you have nothing to fear from the enemy. In fact, he's so powerless before Christians that a single word subdues him. I, I wish I'd have picked a mighty fortress as our God for the end of the day. Yeah, because one little word can fell him, the name of Jesus. Right? There's no magic to it. This isn't some sort of struggle. It's the simple name of our Savior, who is the Lord of heaven and earth. Why do you think he's called that? He's not just the Lord of humans. He's the Lord of all spiritual beings. He is the boss of the cosmos. That wasn't supposed to rhyme. 
All authority was given to the 72, and all authority has been given to us. The enemy can do us no harm while we remain in Christ Jesus. So I want to say, if along your Christian pilgrimage, and I pray it never happens, but it might from time to time. So I want to, the Gospels give us this authority as well as the warning, that if you do encounter and sense the enemy's presence, do what the 72 did. Call on the name of Jesus and say, Jesus, you are Lord over everything. And yeah, this is sort of weird and frightening. I don't know what's going on, but I claim your name, Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, I rebuke any evil that's here. You've been given Jesus' authority. Um, this is really a powerful thing. It's a tremendous thing. By the way, it occurred to me, um, do you all know that um, IHS on a cross or anywhere, that's just the Latin root for the name Jesus, Yesu. That's why we have that there, because we're praising the Father in the name of Jesus. That's why his name is often on altar tables. We call on the powerful name of Jesus. It's a great force to be reckoned with, um, in the midst of spiritual warfare. But this brings us to the third thing that I think that Jesus ends with in our gospel lesson today, which is that we actually shouldn't make too big a deal of all this. Right? Jesus ends, he says, don't rejoice about this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Compared to the enormous reality that we, each of you, belong to the living God, the occasional skirmish with the demons is nothing. I love that. What a great way of reframing the sort of normal Christian truths that we live in. Um, in fact, one of the errors that I want to warn you from, that I've seen Christians fall into, is to actually become fixated or preoccupied on our spiritual enemy. Right? The Bible actually commands us in Romans 16, be innocent about what is evil. Be innocent about what is evil. It's enough to know that they exist. No, nothing more needs to be known. Be wise about what is good. Do you see how it's the same truth? Don't rejoice in sort of spiritual authority that you've been given in times of conflict. Um, rejoice that you know God, that your names are written in heaven, that you have been given the grace to receive the gospel and live forever in Jesus. Um, spiritual warfare is a tiny aspect of this much larger truth of the eternal life. That's the big news. Um, and as part of the sort of life that we get to live in God, right, it's our privilege as Christians, as those who are in Christ Jesus, to come Sunday after Sunday and be refreshed. Um, our, the ministry of word and sacrament, um, these are sort of supplies for the front lines, right? Us who are in the midst of spiritual combat um, against our three enemies that we confess in baptism, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. When we come to communion, we get to be refreshed on the resurrected, immortal body of Jesus. We get to be spiritually rehydrated by the forgiveness that comes through his blood. John Chrysostom was one of the great preachers of the fourth century, a father of the church, and I want to end with something he said once, which has never left my mind, as I doubt it will leave yours having heard it. He's talking about receiving communion as sort of part of the, this life in God that we have that sometimes includes spiritual opposition. He writes this, let us then return from that table like lions breathing fire having become terrible to the devil, thinking on our head and on the love which he has shown for us. Let me read that again. Let us then return from that table 
like lions breathing fire. I love that image. Having become terrible to the devil. Why? Because Jesus Christ has refreshed his indwelling relationship with us. Jesus Christ is present with us. Having become terrible to the devil, thinking on our head, Jesus, and on the love which he's shown for us. Amen.